Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. The things we said when it came to the theme of the beginning of the book of Acts is that Jesus began his ministry, and in the book of Acts, Jesus is going to continue his ministry and his mission. And because of that, the disciples are going to face the opposition that Jesus faced as well. So those are the three operative words. We'll use them in different ways. But the church is going to continue the ministry of Jesus. This isn't a new beginning or a new start. This is the continuation of Jesus' ministry, continuation of his mission. But because it's a continuation, we should expect to see some of the same opposition. And in fact, preview for today, the church, specifically Peter and John, that pairing should matter to us. And we'll talk about why. But Peter and John are going to find themselves in front of the high priest, and there's two of them. We'll ask the question, why, historically, Annas and Caiaphas. Right away, in the first few chapters, we find this. The ministry and mission of Jesus continues, and they're going to face not just some of the same opposition, but they're going to actually be in front of some of the same people on trial, loosely speaking, as Jesus himself stood in front of. And Peter and John, if you remember, were the ones who entered into the courtyard that night that Jesus was on trial. This is going to be an important scene for Peter because this is like, you ever had a do-over opportunity? Maybe you've had those moments in life where you're like, I've been here before, okay? Peter's been here before. And and I, I want you to kind of start to think about what's changed for Peter. It's not been all that long, really. But several key things have changed since Peter last found himself in the courtyard, not in front of Caiaphas and Annas, in front of a servant girl. Jesus was in front of the powers that be. But that dark night in the courtyard, some years or some some moments ago, we don't know, months ago, Peter said, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. And I think you're going to see that something has changed in Peter. And I'm going to suggest to you the thing that's changed in Peter is the whole crucifixion, resurrection, Holy Spirit. Those three things have changed Peter and John and the disciples and caused them to be bold and courageous. So we want to kind of preview that as as we start this morning. So I I want to open up with a word of prayer. Then if if you have your Bibles, open up. We're going to open up to the book of Acts chapter 2, and and we're going to review just a bit. So here's where we're going to start if you're looking in your Bibles. Uh, We're going to start back in verse 38 where Peter is giving a response. They were cut to the heart, and and Peter gives a response. And uh, that's where we're going to pick up this morning, somewhat of an overlap from last week. So let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, I want to thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word this morning in in this way. Uh, God, I want to thank you for um, those who have come this morning, those who are listening online. Uh, God, their desire to to seek your word, to seek uh, what you would say to them through your spirit. Uh, God, I want to pray that you make us like Jesus. God, as his disciples, that you help us continue his ministry and his mission. Uh, God, recognizing that in this world, we will at times face opposition, if not always face opposition if we're living fully for him. And so God, help us to recognize that and to live courageously and boldly. Uh, We pray today that as we observe some of the responses of the church, God, that we could be a church like that, that we could be a church that is responding to what you have done, uh, God, in ways that are um, giving ourselves completely to you and surrender. Uh, Father, I, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things we uh, talked about last week uh, as a way of just reminder, 
try to get it. A lot has happened last week, hasn't it? Uh, I told some, some of you all this morning when I walked in, it feels like I'm coming out of hibernation out of the last few days. And, uh, and even mentally this morning, I was like, oh, we're going to talk to people. Okay, it's been a few days since we're going to get in public and talk to people. Um, but by way of reminder, Peter's sermon was where we left off. And at the end of Peter's sermon, um, Peter said, this is, this is Christ whom you crucified. And they were cut to the heart. And they said, brothers, what should we do? Now, I'm going to be going into the new uh, members class after this class. And they're, they're talking through baptism. Um, and in fact, this, this week at, in my class at Ozark, uh, baptism came up as one of the questions that we had as a conversation. And, and one of the things I left you with was this comment. That when Peter says, here's what you do, repent. We said repentance is a changing of allegiances as well as a changing of direction. But, but probably the better picture is the changing of allegiance. It's more complete. So repentance is sometimes used as a word in the first century of someone who changed their citizenship. So I'm Roman. No, I'm not. Now I'm Parthian. That'd be pretty significant. Um, I used the metaphor last week before the Chiefs lost. I'm a Chiefs fan. No, I'm not. I'm a Broncos fan. And in fact, my kids do that flip-flop all the time because I'm a Broncos fan. My wife's a Chiefs fan. So they're always flipping directions. And we're always saying, you can't do that. Well, that's repentance, right? Because if you're going to go with the winning team, you probably ought to go with the winning team and put on their jersey, okay? So repentance is a changing of allegiance. And if you know who the victorious king or kingdom is going to be, it kind of makes sense. So, so that concept is really helpful for us. Now, repentance comes. Does it come with an emotional response? I would say yes. Is it, does it come with a logical response? I would say yes. Does it come with a physical response? I would say yes. So I want us to, to understand repentance because it's going to come back up again today. What's the danger? Here's my question for you and, and maybe a little bit of table talk for just a second. What's the danger, or maybe weakness is a softer, better word. What's the weakness of only seeing repentance as an emotional response, as only seeing it as a re- an emotional response, okay? I'm gonna let you at your table just discuss that for just like 30 seconds and then we'll dialogue about it together. Okay, and, and I'm just kind of hearing some of the table talk. We, we would all probably agree that emotions can be fickle, okay? Now, after class last week, I had a couple of you come up and, and ask some questions about even uh, that, that dialogue we had about emotions, because emotions aren't bad, are they? But when it comes to kind of the existential idea that I want to feel my faith, sometimes that can lead us in places that, that are not necessarily um, going to be healthy places because God has created us to be holistic. So we are thinking, going, doing, feeling people. I don't want to discount emotions, but I do want to acknowledge this. Repentance is something that is holistic. It is mental. We're making a decision. And the word I like is the allegiance word. We're making a decision to change our allegiance. 
we're also physically then changing some of our behaviors. Notice this is in response to the gospel, not to earn the gospel, okay? Not to earn God's favor. So we're changing our direction. And yes, that should cause, they're cut to the heart. That should cause an emotional response as well. So repentance. We're gonna see this come up multiple times. Um, the second phrase there is repent and be baptized. I want you to notice the word be. That's kind of a weird word to emphasize. Um, but that word is a passive idea. In other words, you actually can't baptize yourself. You can't go do this. That's really important for us to understand. That when someone comes and asks me what my understanding of the Bible is, what is the normal way someone comes to Christ? That's one of the patterns we want to ask. Now, the book of Acts, you're going to notice there's lots of different things that happen. Okay, that Sometimes there are exceptions. And we want to just acknowledge those in the book of Acts. But one of the things I want to start with here is this dynamic, that being baptized is not something I'm doing to earn salvation. Okay? And in fact, we could answer that question, what shall we do, lots of different ways, and, and different groups do, and I want God to be the judge of that. I said that last time we were together. But if I want to ask what's the normative, I want to come to this question. So what is baptism? Uh, baptism to me is a passive act that is done for you by two different groups of people. Number one, obviously, uh, this is something that God is doing or that Jesus is doing when you are baptized. Romans 6 says you are united with him in his death and in his burial and his resurrection at baptism. There is something spiritual that happens at that moment as you are, Peter would say, making a pledge, an appeal of a good conscience, and as you're being washed and as you're being uh, able to symbolize this death, burial, resurrection. In fact, here's what's weird. First century word baptism was always a violent word. Uh, Josephus uses this word to talk about a sword that was sunk into someone's belly. It was baptized. That's kind of gross. Um, he uses this word to talk about a ship that was baptized because it sunk and it didn't come back up. And he uses this word to talk about Herod the Great, who uh, he baptized his brother-in-law, Aristobulus, who was a high priest that he appointed, and then he decided he wanted to appoint someone else. Herod the Great's not always that great. And so he brought him to Jericho, and he baptized him in one of his bathhouses. But he didn't let him come back up. Like, this is some of your fear for baptism, right? Is that you would have someone put you down, and you would bubble and quit bubbling at some point. Um, it's, it actually is a death word. Uh, and notice, when we use it, it's a violent death word as well. We die to ourselves. It's something that we can't do, but we unite ourselves with Jesus and he is the one who buries us with him and raises us with him. Here's the other thing. Here's the other group. Not only Jesus, but the church is the one who does this. It's not we who do this act. We are actually submitting ourselves to Jesus and we're submitting ourselves to the church. And the church is the one who welcomes us in through this you can call it what you want, initiation right. You could call it those things. But the church is the one who brings us into the community through this identifiable marker as we are baptized into Christ, into that relationship. That's that phrase, into Christ, that's used over and over again of baptism. And so I want us to recognize this dynamic and, and also recognize, okay, so that opens up a lot of questions because what about the person who has, that's the leading question, what about the person who has not been baptized? Uh, one of the principles that, um, of inter interpretation of the Bible that, that I would align to, and I think church-wise we'd align to, is this. Where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible doesn't speak, we, we want to allow for some freedom and not necessarily draw hard lines there. So here's my answer to that question. And again, this is me speaking. Okay, Here's my answer to that question. is I don't always know. 
what happens to a person who has not been baptized in this way and is a follower of Christ. Seems like they have um, repented and they are bearing the fruits of repentance and they're bearing that in their life. Um, I'm going to leave that up to God. I have an, I have an opinion. I have an idea that God's going to go, okay, you got that one thing wrong, but your heart's in the right place. Your mind's in the right place. Um, but I am going to come back to the opportunity to say, but let's teach about the beauty of baptism and the significance of it and the symbolism of it and the importance of it in the New Testament and encourage them to walk down this road as well. Um, but not do it in a divisive way, do it in a way that allows them to see uh, this, uh, this picture in Scripture of our unity that we have in Christ and in the church. And I'm going to let ju- God judge what only God can judge, which is what God's going to do with something I see that's maybe not according to what I think is the New Testament pattern. Okay, so here's what I want to do, because we weren't able to do this last week. Questions about that? Because that's one of the big questions that comes up in the book of Acts. We talked about Holy Spirit last week. Baptism is going to come up again uh, in the next several sessions. So so questions you have about that, or thoughts that you have about that? How about on the first side, multiple baptisms? Yeah, here's what my response would be to that. Okay, and again, there's a lot of church history packed into that question. Um, I would say this, ultimately, you can only be spiritually baptized once, but if there's a sense of insecurity to where you go, my heart wasn't in the right place, God's going to recognize one of those. But again, that heart is one of those things that I have to go, I'm going to let God judge the heart, and I'm going to let God see that. I had the same kind of question come up, you know, I was baptized as an infant, but I didn't make that decision to be baptized as an infant. So was that baptism? Well, what is baptism? It's this repentance, it's this confession, it's this desire to enter into a relationship with God. I'm not going to discount that, but I'm going to go, it doesn't seem to be the same thing as this. So I'm going to let you decide as you wrestle with this with Scripture and let the Holy Spirit guide you till you make a decision um, according to that, but try to align yourself to what Scripture says. Is that helpful? Yeah. Yeah. So again, I would say you're only baptized once. I might not know which one that was. One of my fears, though, is this. If the emotional response to repentance is part of it, that we think we're kind of falling in and out of love with God, where the reality is, is God is going to recognize that we can make our commitment to him and still struggle. And we don't have to get baptized every single time. Because part of the evidence of our faith that we have a committed relationship is we get back up when we have failed and we start moving back in that same direction that we've wanted to move into from the, from the very beginning. So I don't expect a newborn baby to be mature. And baptism is a new birth. So I expect there to be a maturing process that takes place. I do remember like the first time I felt like I had sinned after I had gotten baptized. I was like, you know, I was 10 years old when I was baptized. And of course, I had like whole teenage years to go through. I'm like, dang. And, and part of the reality is, is that that new birth represents the fact that we always need the blood of Jesus covering us. And we always need that grace. And so it's important for us to recognize that dynamic of, of what that's for. Yeah. Other, other questions, other observations? Yeah. We're uh, disenchanted mm. and scientific. Yeah. And it's easy to look at it and go, okay, we're just getting wet. Yeah. What are we really doing yes. other than getting wet? Yeah. Like, I, I, so I kind of struggle. Like, what am I even accomplishing? Other I, than I think that's a great observation. Um, I, maybe one of the ways I'd answer that, because I have a little bit of a skeptical mind as well. Um, one of the ways I'd answer that is marriage ceremonies could be the same thing. 
Right, you're just exchanging a ring, signing a paper, and yet it does change everything. Um, it does cha that declaration changes everything. So there is a covenant that is being made there more than anything. So more than the water, it is a symbol. So more than the physical water, it's a symbol of what is going on. And it is therefore a covenant that is taking place in the same way that marriage is a covenant. When we exchange symbols and we light unity candles, those things become part of that, you know, the theological word or the, the churchy word would be sacrament um, that, that unites two covenantal parties together. So it's a good question. I don't think it's the water physically that saves a person. It is this, the moment of that symbol all coming together with what God has done supernaturally through Christ, through the Spirit. It's a good question. Does that, does that move in that direction of answering that question? Yeah, I think so. Because, yeah, it, I, I guess, like, sometimes like, I kind of get the sacrament yeah. part of it, but then at the same time, like, well, it's like when we do communion, it's just yeah. a cracker and juice. Like, what are we really doing? And I would say, again, part of it is, is it is, it's that God has created us to have physical moments of demarcation that remind us of things. So, uh, you know, Israel crosses over the Jordan River. What do they do? They build an altar there to remember it. We build monuments. That's been human history forever. As we build these physical, we have these physical markers that remind us of things. And so one of the things that's helpful for me is when I can say, hey, when did you accept Christ? And I can say, here's when I accepted Christ. I have this physical marker of when I passed through the water. And it's very Jewish, by the way, to pass through the water, to have that be a physical marker. And I can say, this is when I made that decision to follow after Jesus. So, so in many ways, it is this physical moment in time that is both spiritual and emotional and communal, not just me private, but it's me and a community of people, like a wedding ceremony, to where I've made this commitment, made this covenant. Those are good observations. And sometimes the Christian churches, churches of Christ are accused of being, here's a very technical phrase, water regenerationalists, that it's the water who gives you the new birth. That's not actually what we believe. We believe that, yes, the water is important because of the symbolism of what takes place there, of the washing, the new birth, the resurrection. There's so much that happens at baptism. The communal aspect, there's a baptism this morning. We're going to applaud. Why? We celebrate when people make the decision to follow Jesus. You can't do this privately. You need the church. This is a washing of your sins. This is a dying to yourself. This is a new life. You need your family to raise up new generations to do this. All of that happens in that little 30-second window that is baptism. I think that's why the physicality of it's important because a lot of things can happen in that little picture that's in that little brief moment. Now, my clearest picture of baptism, and we need to move on, uh, it was actually when I was 18, I went to Haiti and we were parading through the streets of Haiti uh, to take people down to the river. Of course, they didn't have a baptistry in their building, uh, down to the river in the village to get baptized. Now, what happened was is that you started to bring other people along the parade, didn't we? So other people are following, people who are... Um, voodoo, practicing, some people said they were witch doctors, I don't really know. I'm just 18 years old following along. But these people were baptized in the river there where people were also like bathing their children, washing their laundry and, you know, watering their cattle and butchering their goats. It was kind of an interesting thing. And, and right in the same river, right in the same river, you had someone who's saying, I'm making the decision today for the first time to leave my old life behind, to walk in a new life and follow Jesus. 
And not it only is the church there, but the entire village is kind of gathered around this communal space, which is like, to me, I was like first century world. This is the closest I've ever been to that, what that actually looked like. So it's a public declaration. Sometimes we have a weakness of, well, you know, let's do it in this little private little group. You know, we try to do it up front here. But could you imagine if like we had to go down to the watering hole where everyone went in Orinogo? I don't know if that's the mine shaft that's over here. Okay. <laughs> Um, but but if, if that's the communal, that's the, the water cooler where everyone goes, can you see all of a sudden how baptism becomes this very public, very bold, allegiance-setting declaration? It's a clear picture of I am now following Jesus. And now the entire community knows. You're not hiding that. It's not secretive, okay? It doesn't mean that every baptism was that way because we're going to see Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. They're traveling along and he's like, hey, water, let's go, okay? And so they go down to the water, they come back up. It seems like just the two of them are there, but it's still the church, Still Jesus, the spirit, that it's welcoming them in, but it's, you need to both. Notice that he couldn't have gotten baptized by himself. He needed someone to come along and bring him into the church. That's part of the beauty of it. Then we left off by saying that the, this response, repent and be baptized, it gives us uh, two things. There's two gifts that come of this. Forgiveness of sins is one of those. That's not a surprise for us. When we're united in Christ's resurrection, our death, we're united in his resurrection, but also forgiveness as part of that washing that's there, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, and we said this, that we're going to continue to unpack the Holy Spirit, but that was really the, the meat of our lesson uh, last week. The reason why I want to land there again is we're going to see a similar kind of dynamic that happens this week with a whole entire sermon again with Peter and John and another response. But out of this response, all of that was to get to this, okay? Out of this response, notice that in verse 41, about 3,000 souls were added to their number. And on your last handout, I left off with this, this question that we never got to. When do numbers count? And I do mean that play on words intentionally, okay? When do numbers count? Because I've wrestled with numbers sometimes. Because sometimes we count numbers. How many people attend your church? Well, about 3,000. Oh, like... That was the response, is like number of people, average weekends, especially pre-COVID, that attend Christ Church or Nogo. That's a pretty significant response, by the way. Okay, so 3,000 people are responding. But can I ask you that question? When do, when do numbers count, and when should we be, be careful of numbers? You kind of get the, the heart of my question? Um, what, what are your thoughts about that? I'll discuss that at your table, just like 10, 15 seconds, and then I'll ask some of you your response. How should we deal with numbers in the church? All right, and I know, I know we can go on and on about some of these questions, and, and, uh, and I think it is helpful to have it. What, what, what are your thoughts about numbers, numbers, counting, those kinds of things in the church? I always love it when I'm like, okay, you just discussed this out loud at your table, and now no one's going to say anything. Yeah, what are your thoughts? <laughs> you all are hilarious. Well, we, we were talking about, I mean, really, numbers like, you know, I'm just right direction, but, you know, 
doing you got 15, 1,600 people per service, roughly. You know, if you miss a Sunday, if you still will, you know, the numbers kind of benefit you're going to be scrutinized as a smaller church. Okay. And you're more judged because you missed a Sunday. Now, that accountability at a smaller church, yeah, I went to, I mean, some of you have been to small churches. I grew up in a church of probably about 50, 60 people. I thought it was big, you know, because yeah. that was the biggest gathering I was ever a part of in my small town. Um, I thought the preacher couldn't see me when I was in high school because we were passing notes in the back row. I was like, there's no way he sees me. Now that I teach students uh, classes of 50, I'm like, he saw everything. I, mean, I reached back out to him. I'm like, I'm sorry. And, uh, and, and so there's a dynamic to where, okay, there's some differences we, we want to recognize in church size of even how to disciple people. What does that look like? But then on the first side of the stock, then we have like, small groups. Yeah. You know, really small groups, so the small numbers are good. You have the big mass of people. And yeah. It all branches out, and you start to build the churches. Good. And we're going to see that something from, we started at 120 people. Remember Acts chapter 1? Okay. Now we're at 3,000. Something's going to need to change. Acts chapter 6, we're going to see there's a crisis because of growth, and something's really going to need to change at that point. So the church has growing pains. Imagine that, okay? Numbers in the book of Acts, it's really important to follow these because numbers do matter only because people matter. Sometimes you know this, in a success-driven culture or a corporate culture, which is what we live in, again, I'm assuming kind of generalities of us in our culture, um, if we're using numbers only as a metric for success and not for kingdom uh, purposes or kingdom efforts, it, that can be dangerous, can't it? Um, you know, kind of ministry training world, we talk about, sorry for the, the, the words here, but butts and budgets. If that's all you're counting, um, then there's maybe a, maybe a problem when it comes to your motivation. And so I want us to pay attention to this, this theme in the book of Acts that numbers do matter, but it's because we're talking about people here. And so in a church, sometimes churches, large churches or small churches, get accused. All you care is about is numbers. Well, that could be true. Or it could be that church is very passionate about allowing every single person that possibly can have the opportunity to hear the gospel and come to the gospel. One of the things I love about here that I've seen kind of over the last, and again, I've been here about nine years, is that even when we like plant a church, let's talk about Hope City, we're okay to send a group of people over there and then like not count those numbers as part of like our numbers. Because in the sense of like, okay, we don't need to just inflate our numbers. We just want as many people to hear the gospel as possible. And I love that. I think that motivation really is important for us to be multiplying ourselves rather than just adding to make ourselves feel like we are being successful. And it's still always a gut check. Um, but we want, to, we want to pay attention to this fact that numbers are going to matter. And then, then we want to turn the page and we want to turn into um, Acts chapter 2. And we're going to notice a, a scene or a transition. Uh, there's about 10 of these in the book of Acts where we have kind of this seam or transition that leads us into the next story. And sometimes this is kind of the meat of the, of the sandwich. So we need to go, oh, here's what happened in the meantime between these stories. So you notice in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to. that The word devoted is important. In fact, uh, six out of 10, I believe the, the word count is, six out of 10 times in the New Testament that word is used in the book of Acts. Uh, so that word's a pretty important word. And when it, when it comes to that word devoted, here's the idea. They remained steadfast in, or they stayed there. This is where they planted their feet. Uh, so when it comes to devotion, uh, this idea of devotion, you know this. If you're devoted to something, you're not moving. Uh, this is going to be somewhere where you plant your feet, somewhere where you stand. Uh, these would be what I would argue become pillars for the church. 
And so when it comes to what are they devoted themselves to? Well, you're going to see this word devoted connected to these same four themes other places. They devoted themselves to, notice, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, we'll come to all of these words in just a minute, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. When it comes to the apostles' teaching, one of the things that's important for us, remember chapter 1, is that we brought the 12 disciples again together, and they said we need to appoint someone in Judas's spot because we need to have these representatives of those who were with Jesus and who were witnesses of the resurrection. The early church expected that a testimony of what Jesus had taught and what he had done and the significance of that would be written down. How do I know that? That's a good, I mean, it's a good question that you'd ask me that. Here's how, here's how I would know that. The Jewish background of the church is the, the way that I know that. Because the Jewish expectation would be this, that every time God institutes a new covenant or every time God moves Israel into a new place or there's judgment and they're waiting his promise, what happens? God sends someone, his representative, a prophet, king, and they write down God's message for that new phase in Israel's history. There is actually a Jewish expectation that when we have a new covenant, that his representatives would actually write down the testimony of what was taught in that new covenantal phase. So now we have the apostles and they are teaching what Jesus had taught to these early believers. It's not a surprise then because of the Jewish expectation that that would eventually get written down in a book format. But you need to know in the first century world, that was rather rare. Pagan temples didn't have a written book It's very Jewish to have the Torah or to have, you know, we would call it the Bible, to have it written down in written form. That's a fairly rare thing in the first century Greco-Roman world. So this expectation is helpful for us to go, why did they all of a sudden start writing these letters down and receiving these letters? And when did these things start to be recognized as scripture, as Bible? And I would argue early They were starting to receive these as authoritative coming from the apostles, those who had been with Jesus and sent by Jesus. Uh, Paul, by the way, refers to Peter's writings that way. He says, man, um, uh, Peter refers to Paul's writings that way. Excuse me. Peter says some of the things about Paul. He says, man, Paul's writings, um, uh, some of the things he writes, some of those things are hard. And I would go, yes, they are. Okay. Um, When it comes to Paul writing about Luke's writings, it's in 1 Timothy, it's in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, Paul is writing about Luke, and he says, as Scripture says, and he quotes Deuteronomy, and then he quotes the Gospel of Luke. It's verbatim. It's from the Gospel of Luke. And he uses that word Scripture. And so I just want to suggest to you that early on, these things are received. So what are they devoting themselves to? They're going, if I'm going to plant my feet, I'm going to plant my feet on the ground that is the teaching about what Jesus, now what do we have, Acts chapter 1, began to do and to teach. So one of the things you know about Christ Church or Nogo that has been true, passed down through the, through the generation, is that we devote ourselves, one of the four pillars, is we want to devote ourselves to the teaching of Scripture, and we want to make disciples through that. So it's not so much what Jim Dalrymple thinks or what Mark Christian thinks. It's one of the things I love about Mark, is oftentimes he'll point you to Scripture and say, scholars say, or, or the Bible says, and it's more about what the Bible says than Mark Christian's perspective or opinion. Now, sometimes we have to try to come at it and go, here's what I think is going on here. But we want to encourage you to, Check with Scripture yourself and plant your feet firmly on Scripture, not on a celebrity or not on a person, because it's the authority of uh, the apostles' teaching. Uh, the fellowship, this word, um, the Greek word here, you know, the word koinonia, um, but 
when I, small church, when I thought about the word fellowship as a kid, I always thought about like fellowship dinners. Uh, and some of you remember Mark Christian's sermon where he brought out like a cart with food on it and talked about potluck dinners, right? Uh, and so the word fellowship is one of those words, it's kind of a, it's kind of a loaded word. Sometimes we've actually um, lessened its impact. Fellowship is this idea of, translated in Philippians, partnership. When you're a partner with someone, you share your resources. We're going to find that that's part of the text here. You pull your energy together. You move in the same direction. You're equally yoked, Would Jesus would use that metaphor, uh, of two oxen or, or two cattle in a yoke pulling in the same direction. Uh, this is that word partnership, uh, business partnership. You get together and you're moving in the same direction. You're using all your energy and moving in that direction. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. Uh, number three, to the breaking of bread. Now, most scholars would, would argue that this is both communion and probably a meal that they were sharing together. That they actually were in living in community together, eating at each other's tables. Now, if you go back to the Gospel of Luke, one of the themes in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is always eating at tables with people, and these people shouldn't be at the same table. That's true of the early church. The people at the table normally wouldn't be in fellowship together, breaking bread together. It was kind of weird to have tax collectors and zealots together, fishermen and tax collectors, wealthy and poor. At the same table, eating food together? That's odd. That's part of the marks of Jesus's ministry is that he is always at a table with different people and they're people you don't expect to be sitting together. Or if he's at a table where you have an elite person, Jesus seems to be inviting other people to sit at the table and it makes everybody mad. So... I think it should be. I think it should be. I think there should be a dynamic where our table is one of our, our best ministry tools for the church. So we as a church have been talking about the people coming as refugees from Afghanistan. Uh, my wife and I had the opportunity with another person here to eat with them. They fed us. And there is this moment that happens when you're at fellowship with someone's table to where you humanize one another. You see each other eye to eye. But there's also a dynamic that says we're family. We have not eaten together. And, and so this, this dynamic of what's changed is Jesus, his ministry, his mission, and even the opposition pushes these people together and it shapes them. Communion is part of this. And so this breaking of bread, what happens at the end of the book of Acts when they break the bread, the two guys on the road to Emmaus, uh, when Jesus breaks the bread, they see Jesus clearly. And communion is a part of what we do symbolically as a part of that, we are coming around the, why do we call it Lord's table? Because we are all coming equal around this table. Now, my hope is, is we do both. We're going to see that the church is going to grow. They're going to spread out. So not all of this is going to be doable. At, at, you can't get 3,000 people around the table. So I'm assuming it's going to be broken out into houses, which is what we're going to see. But I want to recognize that this principle of are we all at the same table? Do we see each other eye to eye? This is something they're devoting themselves to. And they're also devoting themselves to prayers. Now, the early church at this point in time is still practicing. They're still going to the temple. So we're going to notice that there are times of prayer. And in fact, I've listed them for you later on in your handout. Uh, we're going to notice that there are regular times of prayer, 9 o'clock in the morning, noon, and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So these would be times that they would, if they could, go to the temple to pray, or they would stop where they were to pray. Maybe there's some principles, not the legalistic side of like, I have to, but maybe there's a side of remembering where our power comes from 
And this, this, this perspective of grounding ourselves in reality, what is real reality? Not my stresses, not my house having a crack, hairline fracture because foundation's settling. I told you some of my stresses last week. But what's real reality? I need to be, have my foundation built on you. And so prayer is this constant reminder, and they devoted themselves to prayer. Everything significant in the book of Acts is going to come in the context of the church praying. So question for you as a part of the church, and then for a person like me that helps at times lead or even train leaders of the church, what kind of church should we be? These are four principles that I'd say these ought to be pillars, foundation stones of who we are and our strategy for ministry. Now, it's interesting to me because it doesn't sound like much of a strategy. It's very much a dependence upon God and his power to work through us rather than us doing things on God's, for God on his behalf. So when we are dedicating ourselves to the apostles' teaching, we want God's word to move. When we're in fellowship, we want to be together. We, we want this community to be what moves. When we're breaking bread, it's this idea of, of communal life, of being in relationship with another. When we're praying, we're asking God's power to move through us. So they gathered. And we'll notice in, in the same chapter, uh, this principle you were asking about. They gathered in the temple. They went to Solomon's portico. Um, I've given you a, a picture of that on the second page, I believe, of your handout. Um, as best as we know uh, where Solomon's porch or Solomon's portico was, um, this would be on the eastern side of the temple. On the very left side would be the royal stoa. Um, but these are, these are significant size structures. In fact, if you ever get the opportunity to go stand on the temple mount, of course, you have um, not, no longer Herod's temple standing there. That's destroyed in 70 AD. You have the Dome of the Rock that is there now. But you can still get the scale. Go on Google Earth, drop your little yellow guy onto the temple mount later today, and start to get the scale of this structure. It's a pretty big area, and there's spaces for people to gather. So they're going to a public venue. Paul's going to use theaters, synagogues, open-air spaces, the Areopagus. He's going to use very public spaces where people can gather. And then the church is also going to meet in homes. So one of the dynamics that we recognize is that, yes, it is appropriate at times for there to be a big group, but it's also appropriate to get into smaller groups and to have some conversations and relationships that get down more relational. Now, I don't want to be legalistic about it, but part of our strategy for uh, rooted groups or small groups or family groups or Sunday school classes or ministry teams, all those little cell groups in our church is recognizing that we need to, even though we gather together in large groups of 1,000 or 3,000, we also need to help get around tables and have relationships that are around tables in smaller groups. That's part of the dynamic that we start to see in the early church as well. So they are praying. And then we have this story of Peter and this lame, the title here is lame beggar that is healed. They come in the beautiful gate. As best as we can tell, this is the gate that comes into the temple. And the lame beggar is there. You can imagine he's been there. He's over 40 years old, which now that I'm over 40, I'm like, that's not really nice that they'd say he's really old, right? He's, he's over 40 and he was healed. And you know this, Peter comes and he looks right at this beggar. Now, I go past enough people at Walmart at the stoplight to know that it can be uncomfortable to like just turn and stare at someone. Try it, by the way. It, it'll be an interesting experiment. We probably ought to be ready to have a response like Peter um, to where it's um, either I don't have any money um, and I can heal you or here, let me give you something. 
Okay, probably ought to be one of those. Um, but here's, here's one of the dynamics. We have this awkward moment. What is going on in the story? By way of reminder, one of the things that Acts is trying to, and, and again, not making up the story, but one of the things it's trying to emphasize is that notice how Jesus' ministry continues through the church. His ministry and his mission continues. Jesus had a healing like this, and I've listed it for you in your handout. And when Jesus has this healing, pick up your mat and walk. The purpose of that healing was what? I did this so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. What's the context? Peter has just said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. One of the reasons for miracles in Jesus' ministry and in the book of Acts is to verify or validate, John uses the word sign, to be a sign that says the church now has the authority to do what Jesus did in his ministry here on earth. And so part of the reason for this story is that reason to allow us to be able to see, okay, so now the church has that same ability to forgive sins. Jesus says, here's the keys, whatever you forgive, whatever you lose. So we have this dynamic that plays out to where we have this healing. And I, I love some of the medical terminology that's here. His ankles were made strong. Immediately he got up and he begins leaping and praising God. And this is an illusion, this leaping. I have... I am 40 years old. There's not a lot of leaping that I do, to be honest, okay? Um, but not being able to walk, all of a sudden I can walk and I can go in the temple. I, I mean, I, imagine the possibilities here. But Isaiah has this, has this illusion of a, a leaping of a deer. And there's other illusions in Isaiah we'll pick up on, but I think that's an illusion that's here. And it's connected to the coming of the Messiah, that there's going to be this freedom, this healing, this joy that happens. And, and we see that in this man, in this particular healing that takes place. And, and so we have this phrase, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, it's going to continue throughout this. And so he's going to cling to, we're in verse 11, he's going to cling to Peter and John, and everyone's going to run into the, the portico called Solomon's, uh, Solomon's uh, colonnade. And then all of a sudden, Peter is now going to preach another sermon. Now, this sermon has a lot of echoes of the Pentecost sermon. He's going to use the Old Testament. Notice Abraham is going to be there, Isaac, Jacob. And, and we're going to see that then he alludes to the cross, Pilate, just like when they were cut to the heart. I love this phrase, okay? You denied the holy and righteous one. This is verse 14. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life. Whoa. That paradox there, that tension there. You killed the very one who authored or was the beginning of life, the life originator. You killed him. Well, you can't keep him dead, though, because he's the originator of life. And so when God raised him from the dead, we are his witnesses. And by his name and in faith through his name, he has made this man strong in the presence of you all. So you hear the sermon. It's the same kind of thing we said in the Pentecost sermon. By way of summary, the Old Testament points to the coming of Jesus we need to reconcile the fact that our sin is the reason he died on the cross. We need to wrap our faith around the resurrection, that it validates who Jesus was and what he was able to accomplish. And Peter is preaching the same outline of a sermon that we saw in the Pentecost sermon. And then we come down to verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Notice the same imagery. Repent, turn. I love this metaphor. So that the blotting out 
of the, so that your sins may be, sorry, I'm quoting NIV and I'm reading ESV. That's not good. So that your sins may be blotted out and the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. This word blotting out is, is literally the idea of erasing something. Um, to erase something in the ancient world on a parchment, uh, you, would use, uh, you would use a liquid that would actually smear that ink away or absorb that ink away. But, but I love that, that imagery of um, my sins are written down. Colossians uses this as well, um, but it's nailed to the cross. Um, I love this, this imagery of my sins um, have been washed like Isaiah says, and now they're white as snow. Uh, one time, and this is, did not work out as well as I had hoped it was. I was, I was preaching a sermon series, and we had magical paper, uh, paper that would dissolve in water. And we had everybody write, you know, they didn't know that that's what this was. We had everybody write, here's some things that, man, I'm trying to confess. And, and we had a water fountain at the front of the church. And it's a smaller church, like three, 400 people is all. We had a water fountain in front of the church. And, and everyone was bringing these papers up and they were dropping them in the water and they would dissolve. They, like the water was falling and they would just dissolve. And you're just like, oh, that's a good reminder, right? And kind of coming out of the same, the same image. Until I didn't plan this, like the water was recycled. So it's like two gallons of water. And so eventually all of these sins that were being washed turned into kind of this like jelly substance. <laughs> and so there's like this like white glue that's falling now. And like the sins all of a sudden are turned into this. Um, yeah, it didn't really work all that well. Um, but this metaphor is important. And I, I, I need you to hear this because sometimes um, our enemy can use guilt not to bring healing, but to bring shame. Uh, Paul says this, we quoted it last week. Um, you know, godly grief um, produces Repentance. But we also have a grief that, here's my metaphor. I've used it a long time. I'm sorry for the, the metaphor. God uses guilt or shame as a scalpel to bring healing. Our enemy uses it a chainsaw to cut our legs out from underneath of us or to dehumanize us. And so we want to recognize that we have this imagery here that if you are in Christ, the author of life, he can bring death to life. And your sins have been therefore washed out, blotted out. I love that imagery that is there. This is the core of the gospel, isn't it? Is it didn't, it's not what I've done. So, so Peter is preaching this gospel message. A couple other parallels I want you to pay attention to from the, the Pentecost one. And we didn't mention it in the Pentecost one last week because we ran out of time. Is that notice the multi-generational language that's here. Peter said, this is, uh, this is for you and your offspring and all who the Lord will call. And here we have that same language. Um, and in your offspring, shall all of the families be blessed. This is the promise to Abraham. But it's this multi-generational thing. I, I, don't, I don't think it, we should minimize the fact that most baptisms that happen are parents baptizing or grandparents baptizing their, their, their children and their family. That, that's actually the core picture of how this is meant to work, is a generation that tells the story to the next generation and tells the story to the next generation tells the story to the next generation. And yeah, we're obviously bringing in neighbors and friends and other people as well, but we're continuing, perpetuating this story, this legacy of faith down through the generations. This is how God designed uh, this to work. And we're seeing this promise in in Peter's sermon. Um, So Peter Peter preaches a sermon. That's not a surprise for us. And it's very similar to what we saw in, um, in the, the Pentecost sermon. We see the Old Testament. We see Moses. We see Samuel. We see allusions to Isaiah. And I've listed some of those for you there. But what I want us to see is this last scene. We'll take the last 20 minutes or so to talk about chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. Is we come to this moment to where now we don't have um, kind of this, seg- this segment to where we have, and the, the uh, disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now what we have is a response of opposition. In the next few sections, the next few weeks, 
we're going to see that because they modeled themselves after the ministry and mission of Jesus, they're going to get some of that same response of opposition. We have not had a lot of that thus far. We're going to start to see that. Some of it's going to be external, beginning chapter four, or external. Some of it's going to be internal. We're going to talk about two people who said, oh yeah, we're going to give up our property, all of it, and they lied. Some of it's going to be internal. Does the church ever struggle with external threats? And then if not, internal threats. Yeah, it does. Um, That's part of the reason why people in our context often say, I don't want to go to church because I don't like Christians. Because sometimes internal threats are actually the bigger threat. And so we need to wrestle with some of those things. Okay, so we have this opposition. And and again, we're not going to read it uh, verbatim. I'd encourage you to do so. But a couple of things I want to point out. Um, It mentions the high priestly family. This this is exact, and I started with this. This is exactly the same group of people Jesus was in front of in front of his trial. How can Annas and Caiaphas both be high priests? Well, it's a little bit of the power dynamics with Rome. Rome reserved the right as the as the uh, oppressors to appoint the high priest. Thus, why Herod the Great, as one of the Roman puppets, baptized his brother-in-law and appointed a new high priest because he had that right. He had that authority. So we have this dynamic to where Annas um, is the Jewish high priest because he's the oldest, and you had that position for life. But Rome had said, okay, Annas, you're out. Let's appoint some other people. Well, he's still a power broker. And so out of the people who followed Annas as high priest, multiple of them, I think it's like five, maybe six of them, uh, were his sons or sons-in-law. Caiaphas is a son-in-law. So Annas is the godfather. Okay, sorry, I've never seen that movie. I probably ought to at some point in time. Uh, Annas is the godfather. Caiaphas is the Roman puppet, but political leader, a young up-and-coming leader, Young's relative. But Jesus had been in front of them. You, you get the story, okay? Captain of the guard of the temple. There's a military police for the temple. Um, Josephus, one of the historians, talks about them being a little bit um, able to um, punish people who didn't do things the way that the high priestly family wanted to. Um, and the high priestly family is not the same as all priests, by the way. You have high priestly family, and then you have thousands of priests that live throughout Palestine. Some of them lived in poverty because of the corruption of the high priestly family. So you have this same story. And I love this about Peter's story. It's his second chance story. He's no longer in the courtyard. I don't know if it's the same building. I mean, if I'm telling the story, I want to think it's the same building. But he's no longer in the courtyard. Peter and John are the two who, John's the one who got him in because somehow he's connected to the priestly family. We don't know how. And now they're standing in front of Caiaphas and in front of Annas and in front of this priestly family. I don't know that it's all exactly the same people, but we have these dynamics that are there. And here they are saying to, to Peter, I don't want you to preach in this name. Name, 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 name. It's not, I wish it was three times. If it was me writing the story, I'd make it three times. Uh, I've counted multiple times to see, is it three times? But over and over again, Peter's not going to be caught in, in that same temptation, is he? Okay, I don't know the man, I don't know the man, I don't know the man. Peter's like, in the name of, in the name of, in the name of. And I love that about Peter. What's changed? Well, we've already said crucifixion has changed. Resurrection has changed. The coming of the Holy Spirit has changed. And so this is, in many ways, Peter's second trial in front of those who oppose Jesus. And so Acts chapter 4, verse 13 is one of my favorite uh, verses in all the book of Acts. Maybe it's because I see myself as kind of a blue-collar, ordinary man. Um, they, well, they saw the boldness, Peter and John. They perceived they were uneducated, common men. This man's a Galilean, is what they said of Peter 
in the garden, didn't they? We can tell by his accent. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I hope that's true of you, that you don't need to have all of the answers, but that someone will recognize that you are a disciple of Jesus. And I actually hope that's true of the church, that they will recognize that we are people who are followers of Christ first and foremost. And so this particular passage for me helps frame up some things as we move on in the course of the narrative of the book of Acts. But in this dynamic, I want it to be true of me first and foremost, that I want to spend time with Jesus and therefore have the ability to speak about his name and people be astonished and go, what's changed? Why, do, why are you that way? Why do you live that way? Why, why are you, and again, I'm saying you as in y'all, why are you generous the way you're generous? Why, why, did you, why did you give that? Why did you invite them over? Why, why do you get up on an icy morning and go to church in Oranogo every Sunday? Why do you do some of the things you do? Why do you parent the way that you parent? Why do you say no to some of the things you say no to? You see, it's not so that we earn anything. It's because we're followers of Jesus. And so, because we're followers, we continue the ministry and the mission, and sometimes we face the opposition um, that Jesus faced. So when it comes to the end of this, um, we have Peter over and over again um, talking about the name. They recognize they'd been with Jesus. And then this phrase, I want to kind of wrap up with this phrase, verse 19. Peter and John answered them when they said, no longer speak in this name. They say, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. Well, notice in the book of uh, the entire New Testament, there's a theme of when is it appropriate um, to act in a way that would not be in submission to governmental leaders. But there's also a theme in the New Testament that encourages us to submit to government, governmental leaders. You notice that? This is one of those helpful verses that says, I'm going to submit, I'm going to submit as a disciple of Jesus, trusting that he is ultimately sovereign over government. Until the place where government says, I need to do something that would not allow me to then also be in submission to God. And then I follow God and I probably am at risk of losing something. It's going to be a detriment to me. Sometimes we actually get that upside down. And we go, I'm not going to submit because I need and I have and I have wants and I have. That's actually the opposite of what the New Testament does. So we want to follow the theme of the book of Acts. Is that we submit ourselves to God, first and foremost, as our allegiance. There's that repentance idea, allegiance. And if we can, we're going to live in peace and harmony. We can go to Romans, we can go to 1 Peter, we can go to different places. We're going to live in peace and harmony, be submissive to the people that in God and his sovereignty, he has placed over us. Notice Nero is emperor. It's not like it's, you know, a Christian leader. But at some point, if they say, you need to do this, and that's in direct opposition to what faithfulness to God looks like, then we say, no, I need to go with my allegiance here. And it's probably going to cost us something, not gain us something. And so we want to live with some of that tension. And again, we're going to see this come out in the narrative in other places. But I want you to wrestle with that in your own discipleship. Because one of the things we've done with Acts, here's part of the reason for our study, is we want to look at the pattern and say, not what's the formula for how do we do church, but what's the pattern for how do we follow Jesus as disciples? How do we follow Jesus as disciples as the Holy Spirit enables us or empowers us? How do the acts of Jesus continue through us as we continue his ministry, his mission, and at times face opposition? 
Okay, so that, that's what we're going to close out today. Um, here's what I'll we'll notice and kind of preview for next week. When we come back together, we have another theme. One of those, one of those themes are transition phrases. Verse 32, all the believers are going to have everything in common. And then that's going to actually bring some internal uh, conflict that's going to take place as well. So we're going to start next week in verse 32 of Acts chapter 4, if you're trying to read ahead. I put the schedule for you. Uh, We're going to be all the way through Acts chapter 6, verse 7 next week, in case you're trying to read ahead. Okay? We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming in. I'll be around if you have questions like we did last week. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christchurch, visit us online at cco.church.